We are going through the book of Matthew. We are getting near the end here, and so we're getting to the thick of some good narrative action tonight. We're going to see a lot go on, so hopefully we can kind of track together. Um, so real quickly, um, we need to recap and just look at very, very briefly what we did last week. So last week, Jesus is walking towards his, he's in his last week, he's in his last couple days actually. Um, we saw Mary anointing Jesus, this woman who comes and they stay at a Pharisee's house and she's the one who anoints him and the disciples kind of react against that. Um, but Jesus puts them in their place sort of deal and, and reminds them that he is worthy of worship. After that, there's the Last Supper. And so Jesus gives his Last Supper. He points out his betrayer. We have all kinds of things. So the narrative picks up very quickly. Um, Judas then agrees to betray the Christ. And then Jesus, Jesus predicts Peter's dis, uh, denial of him. Okay, And so those were all the things we touched a little bit upon last week. Um, we're going to forge ahead tonight quite a bit. Um, and we're going to see, one of the things we're going to see a real stark contrast between Jesus' actions and his disciples' actions. Um, there are going to be a lot of overtones where you can really see Jesus' strength and, and, and honest confessions and the failure of the disciples to support him. So if you have your Bible, please open up to Matthew chapter 26. If you don't, I'm going to be reading off the screen. So either way, uh, follow along and we'll address things as we go. So as I read, so Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. So this is a, very, a lot of these passages are very familiar. We know these narratives, but they still speak very powerfully into our lives. Um, the first thing I want to address, first of all, is right off the bat, we see Jesus very willing and caring and desiring to commune with the Father. He shows a very honest, open relationship with him where he grieves and he even prostrates himself, right? He falls on the face before the Father and is praying to him, if it, if it may be possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So we see Jesus very strongly desiring the Father's will above his own. And we see an interesting thing. I mean, I know a few months ago we went through our, our series on prayer and we asked all sorts of questions. And his prayer is so interesting because it has this sense of, he, he seems to know everything that's going on, right? He identifies this cup, which he'll, he'll identify again in the next section we'll see. And that seems to refer to the cup of suffering, right? He knows what is about to happen to him. He's already identified that he's going to be betrayed. It seems like he knows that he's going to go down, it's going to be physical, it's, he's going to die a suffering death, and that is the cup that he has to bear. And yet, he is, he is still praying before God, saying, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, would you take it? And if not, help me to accept what I, what I think I already know. So we see this fascinating tension even in Jesus' prayers and how he teaches us to pray, because sometimes we may know the outcomes, we may know certain things, and yet... There still seems to be that freedom to, to express our grief, to express our sorrow, and yet accept 
God's will and yet accept there, there may be things out of our control. Um, we also immediately already begin to see the disciples failing, right? So he turns to his disciples. So he at, first he asks them to pray, and we see how he's deeply grieved, and yet he wants company. We see the humanity of Jesus very strongly in this passage um, where he, he just wants people to be with him and support him in prayer, and they don't. They fail, and he calls them out on it, tells them to watch and pray so you may not fall in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Jesus speaks a lot of these pronouncements, right? This is a pronouncement saying where the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He takes this opportunity to, to teach a much larger truth, a much larger reality that in many cases we are willing to do certain things, and yet for some reason we don't end up doing them. <laughs> um, we're not able to carry them out. And we see that connect to the previous section where Peter had just told Jesus, right, when, when he says, Peter, you're going to deny me, what does Peter respond he responds by saying, no, 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 if I, I will go to death for you. And so did the rest of the disciples. They, they, they agreed with that sentiment that they would be willing to go to death with him. And they can't, but now they can't even stay up. <laughs> they can't even stay up to pray. Um, and so we see this willingness, this desire. I mean, and there's good reason to think that Peter was serious about that, that he wasn't just saying that he actually loved God, he loved Jesus, and that he wanted to support, you know, he, he wanted to stand firm in his faith. But we're going to see that that doesn't happen. Um, any Questions or any thoughts to any of this? Yeah. Morgan, um, what do you think it is that are keeping watch for? I mean, is this, are they keeping watch for people coming for them? Yeah, I read in, in one commentary, even, even the translation of keep watch is more so just stay up. Um, either way, I mean, maybe, maybe there is a lookout type of thing. Maybe he's looking for privacy and, and some ability to say, hey, if anyone comes, let me you know, do this and, and keep watch for me. I really think that, like I had said, I really think it's more deeply tied to just the idea of, be with me, right? I mean, he is in this, we, we see one of the most intimate or just vulnerable moments of Jesus' life. And he wants people, you know, this close disciple, these disciples who have followed him for, you know, three years or so. And he only really takes those, what they call the inner three, James, John, and Peter. So, I mean, you, you see that even one level, uh, one extra step towards intimacy where I think he just wants company and, and people who would actually pray with him and allow him uh, you, you know, that they would just be with him amidst that. So that's what I think. I'm not positive. I mean, maybe he's keeping guard as well. Yeah, Philip. But doesn't he, like, go away from them? Yeah, um, he, he does. So, it's. I mean, I don't, yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't seem to be a case of communal prayer, right? But he's also still telling them, you pray, I need to go pray as well. And we see that Jesus withdrew all the time to the Father, right? We see that. Uh, John 15 comes to mind, actually, just, we had just had that passage preached this morning, where even after this miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 people, what does he do? He withdraws to pray with the Father. And so it does seem that there's this very intentional, Jesus is just wanting to spend this time with the Father, but for some reason he wants them to be with him, uh, to pray at a distance, you know, even though he goes a little further, there's still that communion or communal aspect that he's desiring that his disciples would, you know, be there for him sort of thing. At least that's my take, that's the sense I get here. Yeah, so we're going to see this continues. So he went a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said, them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So we see, so Jesus even gives them a chance, right? So the first time he steps away, he prays. 
he's annoyed that they, don't, that they aren't able to stay with him. But he even gives him a chance. He says, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Stay up. Stay up for your temptation. Um, and that temptation, I had forgotten to say it, sorry, is probably most likely going to refer to Peter. And we're going to see it come out where Jesus tells them, reminds them of the necessity to pray. Reminds them of the only way that they, as the disciples, and, I, and it applies directly to us, the way that we pull through temptation, according to these scriptures, is the idea of prayer and centeredness in Christ and understanding his will and being able to have you know, some sort of power that is coming through the Spirit. Um, that doesn't, that won't last on our own. Yeah, John. It seems like they're falling asleep and he's praying, right, all by himself, right? And they're not awake. So how do they know what he's saying? How do they get that in the book of Matthew? Right. Yeah, that's, that's a frequent idea is that uh, one of the real, obviously, likelihoods would be Jesus did rise. We celebrate the resurrection in two weeks from now. And, and in those resurrection, church, a lot of church history and a lot of thought is the idea that Jesus filled them in on these things. Um, that it's actually thinkable that that could be the case um, where, yeah, they're, they're asleep. So it's highly doubt, you know, Peter's not sitting there with a pen or something right, writing down this down. He's sleeping. Um, but we do think the idea of, of the Holy Spirit does prompt writers. And that's a whole topic that we're actually hoping to address at some point is what does the inspiration of Scripture look like? What, what are some of those processes? Um, you know, how does that work? But obviously all throughout the book of Acts, we see the Spirit doing a very powerful thing. In the book of John, he even talks about the Spirit will remind you of things that I've taught you. Um, so we would think, uh, at least assume that um, the Spirit does something afterwards. Maybe Jesus tells them in his post-resurrection appearances, things like that, where they would somehow have this story sort of thing. So back to this with, so, and, and Jesus is praying the same thing. Right? He prays it three times. You know, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. Um, and we see this powerful example in Jesus to be willing to do God's will, even if it's suffering and death. And that should challenge us. It should call us into what, what are the things God places on our lives and how willing are we to really follow them. Right? I mean, Jesus is at his deepest, darkest moments saying, God, I need you to fill me. I need, I need the strength to go through this type of suffering. But he has a willingness to do it, and, and he actually and he fulfills the things, the mission that God has given him. So at the end of that, he, the betrayers are coming, right? The crowd is coming. So it says, in, starting in verse 47, While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with him. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sit in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So we see a couple failures, again, of the disciples. First is the idea that somehow they get the notion that we, they should take violent 
reaction. It seems kind of silly, especially because you have a large crowd all coming with, and they clearly have weapons. And yet, we don't really know who did this. A lot of church tradition believes it was possibly Peter. He seemed to have that personality, possibly even uh, of the zealot. Um, Jesus did have some zealot followers in his inner circle. And he seemed to have that real uh, passionate response sort of thing. So church tradition kind of thinks it might be Peter. We don't really know. Um, yeah, go ahead. Was it standard that like people would just have their own swords <laughs> all the time, or like was this part of what Ben was talking about, like keeping watch? Were they actually like defending him while he was praying? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I I don't think that it was normal for for random peasants to be walking around with a sword. Um, I, I actually I don't think so. It is a strange thing. I mean, there's in the book of Luke. It's really interesting because Luke actually tends to emphasize Jesus' movements towards peace. And yet, I think in chapter 22, he tells them disciples like to even bring a sword. You know, so, I mean, there's a possibility it's, it's a difficult one to piece together on why they even have one. Um, so I'm not exactly sure why he even has one to begin with. Yeah. Well, they were going into Jerusalem and people had even warned Jesus that if he, I think, like they, they, or he knew that if he went into Jerusalem, he was going to his death. And so it's possible that the people that were with him wanted to be prepared for that. Also, they knew that there could be something happening. Yeah. So maybe they took it in their own initiative too. I mean, that's, that's a real possibility. Yeah, but I mean, it still brings up that question, why didn't Jesus, you know, tell them earlier, like, what's that sword doing there? Like, what are you doing with that? <laughs> um, but, I mean, this is a very, this is a passage that many, especially uh, in the Christian pacifist tradition, look very strongly at to say Jesus is clearly identifying um, that violent resistance is not his way. We see that way back in the Sermon on the Mount. There are plenty of teachings there that most people point to to say Jesus is, is someone who's rejecting violence. At minimum, he's clearly rejecting violence in this case, understanding his mission. We see here where he talks about, uh, when he says, put up my disciples more than 12 legions of angels, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And again, a second time he says, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. So Jesus, if he may, maybe it's not a universal proclamation that nonviolence is the only way. Maybe it is. A lot of point, people point that it is. But even if not, he's clearly understanding his mission from Old Testament scriptures. And in a moment, I'm going to get to those. Um, I believe it's the, the servant songs from Isaiah that are, that are specifically talking about the Messiah, about the Christ, and that he will have to go through a suffering. And that's the way that God's will for, for Jesus' life, for the Son, was going to be through suffering. And so he's clearly rejecting that. Um, and again, we see a pronouncement statement, and this might be why it's more than just, just this simple um, occasion, because he says, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And so he's at minimum identifying the cyclical nature of violence, uh, the, the destruction that it causes to, to oneself and to the person you kill or hurt. So th those are real definite themes here in this case. And he's clearly, again, we see another step where Jesus is choosing the Father's will in understanding, okay, my lot seems to be suffering. And so I'm not going to try to get away. I'm not going to try to even, even though I can call down the legions of angels to stop this whole thing, even though the messianic expectation was of, of a political ruler who would do such a thing, would, would reestablish the kingdom of Israel, that, that was not the way, that was not his, his mission. So by this time, it's clearly obvious 
we have this contrast between Jesus, who is understanding his mission, desiring God's will, fulfilling it, and you see the disciples totally blowing it. Again, back to, I think, I think it's uh, 26, verse 35, where they've all agreed with Peter to say, yeah, we, we wouldn't desert you. We will be here with you unto death. And they desert. Um, interestingly, I don't know the background on this, so I wouldn't know. I'm not sure how much their lives were in danger of being with Jesus. I'm not really sure. So maybe there's the idea that, okay, they're bringing forth this charge against Jesus. They're going to bring forth the charge of blasphemy. We're going to see that in a moment. Um, so maybe the disciples' are, lives are in danger because they're with a blasphemer. I don't know. But there's also nothing explicit to even say that they're in real danger. So, I mean, there's even a case to be made, man, they're even blowing it before their lives are really even at stake. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they would have because, you know, whoever chopped off the ear, maybe that would cause them all to come into trouble. So maybe their lives are at stake because this crowd could turn on them at any moment. We don't know. Um, it's definitely conjecture. But either way, they clearly flee. Did Christ restore his ear? Am I crazy or did I... Yeah, that's in the book of Luke. So the book of Luke, he, will, he picks up the ear and places it back. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he does. Um, and, and so, I mean, even, and in that case, you know, he reaches out to those who are persecuting him, you know, and, and to those, even his disciples, when they make a mistake, he's covering up for it. So, um, yeah, but it's, it's very interesting. How are they going to risk you for cutting off some guy's ear if he still has his ear on? How are you going to explain that when you're back? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, so, so Jesus seems to be unjustly persecuted. We're going to see in a moment. I bet you they could have found a way. We, we do know that the perversion of justice is a reality in this world, right? So even though you have a good point, not really when you have a biased, corrupt government or, or, or people in charge who can, they can pull some strings. Let's just say that. So did you have... Uh, sort of on the disciples being in danger thing, it does seem that if they were more in danger, they might have, I mean, they, they specifically only arrested Jesus. He says, this is the guy, they grab him. If they don't grab the disciples, not bring them all in for questioning, just nab that guy. It also is like a mob of people with weapons that, like, I mean, under any circumstances, it's something you should probably be afraid of, you know, like... You can certainly see why the disciples would flee. I'm not trying to make the case that, oh my gosh, how could they possibly flee? I mean, yes, there's a large mob. <laughs> yes, they have weapons and they're taking their, you know, their leader for the last three years. So clearly their lives are, you know, I can understand how it's a scary situation. And yet Jesus has prompted them. He has he's foretold them that, that things are not going to go well. Um, you know, earlier, I think in chapter 25, when he talked about uh, at some point, you will be put in prison, and, and you will testify, and I will give you the words to say. You know, so he, he's told them beforehand that things won't go well for you either. So maybe they refer to that. Maybe they're afraid. Maybe they're just afraid in the moment. Whatever it is, they, they clearly do not fulfill what had been their willingness to say, hey, we'll be with you unto death. You know, I mean, they really, they, they abandon Jesus. So that point is pretty clear. Let's go ahead and move on to Jesus' trial. And this is not really a, a full set trial. It's kind of like a mock trial sort of deal. Um, let me go ahead. So it's beginning in, in verse 57. So those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Okay, let's stop there. So first, 
Peter is identified. So the disciples all flee. We don't hear about the rest of them, you know, basically until, until the end of the gospel, until Jesus uh, dies and, and rises again. So Peter's at least sticking around, right? I mean, he's at least moving in the right direction. Matthew's clearly identifying these two characters, Peter and Jesus. And Peter's going to resurface at the end of our chapter, we're going to see. So you can, again, see this parallel where we're going to see Jesus stand strong in this trial, and we're going to see Peter totally blow it again. Okay? Um, so Peter's identified right away. Now, the other thing is the chief priests and the Sanhedrin. Um, some of the background, just real briefly, the reason why they had this trial or this kind of, it seems like a gathering, an impromptu sort of gathering, where the Jews could not execute. The Romans allowed them to have their own laws. So things like blasphemy, which is what they're going to bring against Jesus, that was something in the law was punishable by death. But the Jews didn't exactly have the power to carry out their execution. Now the reason I bring that up is because in many, throughout the history of Christianity, sadly, there's a very strong strand of anti-Semitism. Right? And things like this, they'll say, well, the Jews killed Jesus, so there's been a long tradition, actually, of hatred towards the Jews. Um, sadly, Luther, one of the you know, foundational people in, in the Protestant Reformation, obviously, who had a great faith and witness and, and has done great things in our faith, also was highly, highly, highly anti-Semitic. And so they'll point to things like this. So we need to keep in mind that Rome was the one who actually ended up fully persecuting Christ and, and executing him, and they had the authority to do that. So we just have to be able to say, it's, it's just something to be mentioned to say, you know, there's, it's, it's very complicated, right? And it's, and it's sadly a part of our tradition as Christians that, that there has been a strong, of, strong sense of anti-Semitism. So I felt like that's worth noting is the fact that, yes, they're going to build a case. Yes, they're going to bring false witnesses, but they didn't exactly have the power to execute Jesus. Um, so they get these false witnesses. And they talk about, so this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, we kind of know about the temple Essentially, it is the national identity, their pride. It's the center of their worship. Um, and we see, if you remember, way back to Matthew chapter 12 in verse 6, when Jesus and his disciples are going through uh, a field, they're gathering grains, they're eating on the Sabbath, and, and they're confronted about it. Jesus says specifically, something greater than the temple is here. Right? And he does make this claim that I, in me, in my personhood, and in my mission and ministry the power or the, the centrality of the temple is going to be overthrown. But he also didn't talk about destroying the temple, right? So, I mean, we, ha we do have a, a false accusation here pretty clearly. Sorry, I said a little bit back, like false witnesses, um, but then what they said was, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Like, didn't he actually say that? So how are they false witnesses? Right. Um, he, did, he did discuss that, um, and he, well, he's referring to his body, right? I mean, so, yeah, yeah. we... So they, they might have taken it as a, okay, this guy's going to try to destroy the temple. Um, yes, I mean, I know he does say something similar. Let's, let's get it exact. Um, yeah, Ben, go ahead. Yeah, uh, this is actually it's in John 2.19. Okay. Um, it says, uh, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay. So it is slightly different, um, at least in John's. Let's see if we can find one for Matthew as well. I mean, that in itself wouldn't be a claim to say, I'm going to destroy the temple. Um, it points more at himself as well. Um, it's good that Phil brought that up. I mean, it wasn't like that came out of nowhere. Um, um, but that's what's brought before him. So then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, and his silence will be important. We'll get to it in a minute. 
the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So the high priest connects their false accusation of the temple to a claim upon Messiahship. And uh, R.T. France comments that there was a messianic expectation of whoever the Messiah was, that there'd be even a new temple. So that's kind of that connection. It's not as strange because even first reading it, you're like, wait a minute, so why does Caiaphas, is he just trying to frame him or why does he connect those two things? That's why. There was a messianic expectation of a new temple. So Jesus' response, first he was silent and then Caiaphas brings this before him. Jesus says, yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? So at first, Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. And it seems kind of veiled, actually, because he's making him, well, you said it, right? So he's not even, he's kind of affirming it and kind of not. It's a sly way. But he takes a second step and makes it very clear that he is the Son of God. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, the background on some of these are a couple extremely important verses which would be Daniel 7.13. So in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And the second is Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. So Jesus is basically using both of these as the background and claiming an extremely high status. He is claiming that he's God. He is not, there's nothing less than that because of both of these things. The son of man the coming on the clouds of heaven refers to that power and authority, a reign that is beyond just this earth. Um, and that only God would have that, right? Only God would have that sort of reign. And also, this idea of sitting at the right hand of God is only, uh, that, that's only, again, a high, high claim to power. Okay? And as we can see by the high priest's response, they understood straight, straight, very straightforwardly, it's blasphemy. Right? We don't need any more witnesses. He tore his clothes. France even says that's something for the high priest. They would never tear, tear their clothes. And they wouldn't do that. And so it's a very uh, strong statement by them. Um, and, and so it's very clear that in their eyes, Jesus is either God or it's blasphemy. And they clearly choose the idea that, well, they're not going to buy into that. They've been looking for charges for a while. They've been plotting. Um, that's the evidence they needed. Now they can take him to Rome. Now they can take him to the authorities who can successfully execute him. And right off the bat, they begin to spit in his face and strike him and mock him. Now, one of the things we talked about was the background of the Old Testament and the background of Jesus, those scriptures that he's fulfilling. So I wanted to highlight just a few of them so that we can see. These servant psalms, songs um, are highly divisive. Again, this is one of the things where the Jews believe most of these ideas of the servant, whoever the servant is who's identified in the Old Testament is actually Israel or a group of Israelites. And Christians believe it's Christ. And they believe that he is that servant. So he will not lift a cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Remember, Jesus was silent at first. And that's, and that's where it comes from. Isaiah 50 is verse 6. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. We already see that. We're going to see it way more next chapter where he's actually crucified. That activity is going to continue. Isaiah 50 verse 5. 
The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn back around. We see that tie into his prayer. Father, your will be done, not mine. And he goes through with, he allows himself to get arrested even though he can call down angels. He doesn't try to defend himself or get out of his sentence. He actually makes it worse by claiming very, like, I'm, I'm the guy. <laughs> you know, so he does nothing to get back, to turn backward. 53, Isaiah 53, 7a and 7d, it's a longer verse. So he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Matthew seems to be referring to that when he speaks of Jesus' silence. And then Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his day. Through him the will of the Lord will prosper. So Jesus understood himself as the fulfillment of these things. And that these prophecies actually speak of him. And actually this is the mission he came to fulfill. And so again, we see this clear idea upon Jesus. His whole trial is one where Jesus is not out of control. He's not fearing. He's not cowering. He's not doing all the things that the disciples are doing. He's faithfully walking into a mission where the cup is suffering. Um, and he does nothing to stop that. Any thoughts? Any questions? Yeah. I feel like it was kind of necessary for the disciples to go away, though, because if they hadn't, what were they supposed to do? They would have just sat there. It would have been against the prophecy for them to be kind of interfering and for them to be kind of, I mean, this was a process that had to go a certain way and Jesus knew that, so he took it upon himself to make sure that things went as they were supposed to as much as it applied to him, but if they would have interfered then, I don't know. So maybe they had to go away. I, I mean, I, I agree in the sense that I don't think Jesus was looking for them to interfere. I see one of those lessons and one of those, those ideas. I mean, even we at Exodus here are trying to live. How do we live in community with each other? How do we support each other uh, through moments of, of difficulty and, and things like that where I, I don't even think Jesus was wanting you know, any of that to occur, just wanting to be there and actually not. I mean, we're going to see, obviously, a, an extreme denial by Peter, <laughs> the guy who Jesus has said, I'm going to build, you know, you're the rock that I'm going to build my church upon. You know? And so we're going to see an, a complete thing. So I'm not sure that... I think they could have been there. I think they could have been around, at least present, at least not necessarily trying to interfere, but at least in support of someone who's going through a very difficult moment. You know? So I don't, I don't know. Um, I think that's what, what we're called to do with each other. A lot of the times we can't interfere, nor should we. You know, we're, we're simply called to be there with other people and, and to pray with them and, and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. I think from like developing that story, you know, I think maybe it could have been it just was you know we're highlighted on this portion. This is all that matters, right? All that really matters right now is what's going on with Christ. It could very well be maybe they are around, but no one was really concerned with anyone outside of Christ, right? Well, the Sanhedrin was very concerned about Peter, John, or no. They, I mean, that's that's why I think I don't think the disciples' lives were in all that much of danger because they didn't give a they didn't give a rip about them. They they were definitely they've been trying to bring him down for a while. Right, as much as they didn't think much of Christ, two guys from Galilee, like, mm -hmm. the joke is, it's right. I mean, all those other guys were from Galilee, and they were fishermen. I don't think they saw much of the threat. Wasn't, they weren't outspoken. Yeah, I, I agree that the story narrows in on Jesus, and it probably would have done so either way, whether they, they were there or not. But Matthew makes it very clear, like, they abandoned him. You know, Peter's the only one who even kind of hangs out in the, in the courtyard of the, of the high priest. So I want to be careful to keep that. Oh. Um, according to John, someone else was there too, besides Peter. And he actually went into 
I, I think it would probably be John himself. So John is saying he stuck around and because he doesn't actually name himself, and that's kind of the way that he does it throughout his gospel is not naming himself. But he went in, he actually went into the Sanhedrin because he needed the high priest. Um, but yeah, everybody else besides Peter. Last section, verses 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. So the, the, the script immediately flips, right? And that's why Matthew had noted Peter came into the, the courtyard. So you go from one central character to the next. And a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So there's a couple observations I want to make. Is first... The first two accusations against Peter are done by a servant girl and, and another girl. And if you know about girls, and that seems to be probably a young child, it could be even adult women, either way, their testimony wouldn't have even been accepted in court to begin with. So why is Peter worried about this girl and the accusation? I mean, he could have blown her off. I mean, not, it's, first of all, they're not even in a court. <laughs> but even if they were, her accusation has no value, no weight whatsoever. So it's interesting because his denial comes... To, to the last person who could accuse him of anything, right? And so we see Peter's fear. We see just an utter rejection. And, I mean, there, there's no way to explain. There's no real loophole we can give him like, oh, he was afraid, you know, and he could have been killed and all these things where it's, that's not happening. I mean, it's a young girl who has no authority and that he just, he's just out in this courtyard, you know, and he <coughs> totally buckles. Um, he denies it. And, and he breaks both the second and third. It talks about with an oath, right? He denied it again with an oath. Um, then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, right? And so we see this even further step where, where Peter <laughs> is breaking the law, right? I mean, he's breaking the Jewish law of, of taking an oath um, or not keeping an oath. Um, and so we see a real, uh, again, I mean, there, there's not a whole lot of brilliance to this. There's, there's nothing good to be shown. Um, and we end with the rooster crowing, Peter remembering, and the this, this section closing with him weeping bitterly, um, you know, and so we see the utter, through this chapter, we really see just the stark contrast of, of Jesus and his faithful confession, his faithful witness to his mission and his obedience, and the disciples' complete failure to support him through that, uh, to stand by the words they had already spoken, that we, will, we won't flee, we, we will be here with you unto death. Um, and we're left with a, with a real bleak picture. Yeah. What do you attribute the disciples' failure to? Why did they fail, do you think? Yeah, I mean, again, it's going to be conjecture, but from the text, if we remember, Jesus was saying, pray so that you would make it through the time of temptation, right? We see that back in, what, verse 41 or so. Um, Jesus' first rebuke, the spirit is willing and the body is weak, the flesh is weak, right? And so he told them, yeah, back in verse 41, so watch and pray so they will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And so at least textually, it sure seems that a lot of it's tied to their inability to pray, their inability to, to desire God to follow his plan for them. Um, 
and, and to stand firm at a, at a difficult time. And so we see that theme carried throughout where they just continue. Af after this warning, they just continue to blow it. Um, and they don't have in mind the things of God and, and, and how to be faithful disciples. So it is a, a strong word on the role of prayer in our lives and the ability to get through temptation. Yeah, Monique. I'm just wondering if like, maybe it could be doubt too because they seem to always sort of know who Christ was but not totally get it. And he told them he, he was going to die, but maybe they didn't totally understand it or it could have been doubt like definitely he's a close friend so they're upset about it and they believe his teachings but maybe it's running through their mind like are you really God why is this happening like how come they've taken you why aren't you freeing yourself like why don't you show your power why don't you know I mean yeah again I mean I think we can understand why the disciples acted like they did um, and I think it should highlight our own fears right I mean there are plenty of circumstances I think we can hopefully recall where, where we felt you know, we didn't, we didn't stand firm for the things that we believe in, in normal circumstances, right? I mean, it's very, there are lots of things we believe in until we're forced to engage that specific belief. Um, and then all of a sudden it gets thrown out the window, you know, and in that sense we deny the things that we believe in. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's very relevant for us today as well as to see one of the times that when we fail. Um, and, and Matthew doesn't leave us on a good note here, you know, I mean, and it's not going to be a good note next week when, when Jesus goes to the cross. Um, you know, we see a, a lot of failure. I mean, we're going to see grace in the end. We're going to see powerful resurrection and, and, and all kinds of things. But he leaves us kind of sitting in the dark. Um, and that's a place where, when, since we're in the middle of Lent, we have two more weeks of Lent, you know, and we shouldn't overlook the season of looking and examining and, and sitting amidst our own darkness and sitting amidst our own uh, issues of doubt and, and, and things like that because it is significant. Because we need to deal with those things because they don't just go away magically. Um, and, and we are called to pray like Jesus did in that same way to say, God, you know, <laughs> if there's some way around this circumstance, whatever that is, you know, may it be so, but if not, may your will be done. I think that's what, what prayer can do in our lives and, and a centeredness because that's, I, I think that's why, I mean, because plenty of people ask, why did Jesus even need to do this? Like, wait, wait isn't he God anyways? Like, isn't he the son of God? Like, why is he going to pray? What, what's the even importance in that? Throughout his ministry, he would even not do miracles at times, even when people wanted to him and say, no, 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 I, I have to recede. I, I have to have connection with the Father. And he did that. Um, you know, and the reason it seems is, is because you can have that centeredness in the face of a, of a very difficult circumstance. Most of our theology, most of our life goes right out the window when something hard comes at us. <laughs> we, all of a sudden, all the things we used to believe, all the, the things we say and our willingness to serve God, some, some difficult circumstance comes and it gets thrown out the window because we aren't able to see beyond that circumstance. Right? And at least Jesus understood the circumstance, was able to take it in and say, no, 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 I, I can face this pressure. There, there is that ability, and I think he gives us the spirit in the same way to withstand against deep external and internal pressure um, and, and be faithful witnesses to him. And, and the disciples didn't do that. They didn't pray. They didn't, uh, you know, they didn't have a clue, and, and that's got to be part of it. Doubt is good, a lot of good. Any last thoughts? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and close this with prayer then. Holy God, you are an awesome God, and we are so thankful that you have called us into relationship with you, that you have saved us, that you um, are the Lord of heaven and earth, um, that, you, that Jesus, you sit at the right hand of the Father. Um, Lord, so we pray that 
you would teach us how to follow you, that you would help us to live in the power of your Holy Spirit. We do thank you for that gift that, um, that you are living and active and you are indwelling us. Um, God, so help us uh, to love you and worship you and, and spend time with you and, and honor you. Um, God, help us through our failings and our weaknesses. Um, Lord, so we pray that you would restore us in the midst of our denials and, and the ways we don't even live out the things we, we say we want to. God, help us, and, and so we praise you and um, ask that you would continue to direct us to your cross and your resurrection in this season. In your name, amen.